Good morning, church. I'm going to do something weird today. I'm going to move this over here. <clears throat> is that all right, Pastor Brenton? All right. Uh, the reason is because we're going to use the screen, and I want to be able to see it a little bit myself, so if that's okay. My name is Marshall Pennell. I, I, many of you know me, but we might have some visitors here today who don't. I serve on the elder team here at Vero Bible Fellowship, and it's such a privilege to be able to do that. Uh, Pastor Greg and his wife Rini are off this weekend getting some uh, rest and relaxation, recuperation and renewal. And uh, so pray for them that they'll, they'll be renewed and restored, strengthened as they come back. And he'll be back in here with his big self standing behind this pulpit next week teaching us the Word of God. Sure appreciate Pastor Greg and his commitment to teaching the Word of God faithfully and accurately and in a way that applies to our lives, that we can take it and apply it because that's what matters, right? Not just to hear it, just hearing it doesn't do a thing for you. You hear it, comprehend it, take it in, meditate on it, and determine how does this apply to what I'm doing and how I'm living. That's, that's when it makes a difference. That's when God is working in our lives. Pastor Greg is faithful to do that. And I, I want this morning for us to go into the Word of God and look at Matthew chapter 8. When Pastor Greg asked me to, uh, to step in for him this week, uh, you know, many times when you're asked to, to speak somewhere, it's, uh, you kind of get to choose your own material and uh, cherry pick what you, you know, feel is easy to teach. Uh, that wasn't the case this week. We happened to be on Matthew chapter 8, and so that's what we're going to be teaching. And it's, it's very interesting. This, this week, as I, or the last week and a half or so, as I've been diving into this and meditating on it and studying it and thinking, what, what is the best way to present this to this group this week? Uh, it, it was difficult for me because it's a, an easy piece of scripture in a way. Uh, we're coming out of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, those chapters where Jesus stood on the hillside in Galilee just above the little town of Capernaum and uh, right on the Sea of Galilee, stood there on that hillside and taught this huge group of people who were, were there gathered around him and, uh, and all kinds of practical teaching about life and and how to, how to forgive people, and uh, all kinds of just good practical stuff he taught them during those, uh, those hours on that hillside. And, uh, and then he came down into the, the village, and that's where we find him today. So in the Sermon on the Mount, what we saw the last several weeks of Greg's teaching was Jesus standing there teaching people about the kingdom of God, and he did it with authority. And he taught with authority. He taught about his authority. He taught about the kingdom. And in his teaching, he made it clear that he was the king of the kingdom. He was the Lord. So it was, uh, was earth-shaking teaching that he had delivered to those people in that Sermon on the Mount. It's important that we recognize what had just happened. Uh, it would be absolute blasphemy and heresy to people if they didn't believe but the result of his teaching was so many of those people who were gathered there did believe. They did believe that he was the Christ. He was the Lord. He was the king of the kingdom. And so that had an immediate effect on their lives. What we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is he's in this chapter. There's a series of stories about what Jesus is doing. But nowhere in this chapter do we find Jesus teaching like he did in the chapters we just studied. Instead, I think what Luke wanted us to see is not just Jesus teaching and what he said about himself, but also he wanted us to see uh, that he, so, sorry, I got distracted there for a minute looking behind me to see where I was. Uh, he, he wanted us to, to see some things about him by example. He taught about his authority, and now he's showing us his authority in this eighth chapter of Luke. So let's, uh, let's dive into this a little bit. If I, if I don't follow my, uh, my notes up here, forgive me. And I apologize mostly to my wife back there who's trying to keep up and make sure I'm on the right spot. So uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gave practical teaching. He also made it clear his teaching that he himself was the king. Okay, let's move forward. People acknowledge that Jesus' teaching was different than what they were used to because he taught as one with authority. It's interesting that this is in the eighth chapter of uh, sorry, in the, the seventh chapter of Matthew that Greg taught last week, right at the end, so, sort of the evaluation of many of the people who heard him in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, saying this was different than the scribes were used to hearing. He taught as one with authority. The piece that Bill just stood up here and read this morning was a different 
gospel, but also a different time. That was after Jesus was teaching in the synagogue right there in the little town of Capernaum, and they said the same thing. Did you notice that? He taught as one with authority, and that's the theme of what we're, we're talking about this morning. Jesus taught about his authority through teaching. Now will demonstrate his authority over all things. I want to uh, get kind of the lay of the land. Sometimes uh, if, if you understand the context of, of the way the landscape is laid out, uh, the way things are, are situated, it helps you understand the, the happenings. In this chapter today, we're going to see stuff that all happened in this one little geographic area. And so I wanted to show you some pictures. Uh, some of you have probably been to Israel and done tours there and have been to this spot. This is up on the hillside above Capernaum. And this is where uh, the Sermon on the Mount was taught. Uh, Jessica and I were, were here a couple of years ago. We were planning to be back there this last spring with a, taking a tour of 72 people over there to Israel to see this, and that, of course, got canceled because uh, of the pandemic. But this is where Jesus was, and you can kind of see how it would have worked as he's standing on that hillside, and all of those thousands of people are there listening to him. Okay, so you see the Sea of Galilee down there across on the other side. It's about eight miles across the Sea of Galilee. It's a big lake, but it's, uh, like it's nowhere near as big as Lake Okachon or the Great Lake. It's a big lake, but not that big. They call it a sea because that's what they, I don't know, somebody decided to call it a sea. But, uh, but you can see sort of how it's laid out. So this next picture will be down, uh, down below this hill. So we were looking down at the lake. If you, if you could look from that last perspective at the part you couldn't see because the hill was in the way, this is what's down below. This is the little town of Capernaum. And today you can go into this little town and they've got some of the, uh, this is a, a, obviously a picture of the ruins and you can tour that. And so you can see it's built on the water and, uh, and then the hillside is right behind it. So what happened as we get into this chapter uh, is that Jesus is coming down off of that hillside where he'd been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he's walking down towards the town of Capernaum. And so that's where we pick it up. And so let's look first at the, uh, the first section of there, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Jesus cleanses the leper. And what I'd like to do today, by the way, is kind of real quickly go through all of these stories and just sort of cover them without reading them word for word, but give you sort of a picture of what was happening. And then we'll come back at the end and, and make some application to all of that. So the first thing that happened is he's coming down from the hillside. Uh, so you, you saw the picture of the hillside. You saw the town below. So he's traveling down with this group of people. And before he gets into the town, so he's still outside of the little town of Capernaum. It has the walls and, and the traditional town built there on the sea. Before he gets to the town, he encounters a leper. And the Bible says this leper came out to, to, meet, to meet him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Stop and think about that a little bit. Where did lepers live? If you had leprosy back in that day, by law, you had to leave town. You had to go outside of the town. You were an outcast, sort of. I mean, you were an outcast physically, but not, not I mean, people still loved you. It wasn't like you were, uh, so what would happen with the, the lepers? They would live in a little area outside of the town that was designated for them because leprosy was extremely contagious. And uh, in order to not have it spread throughout the community, if you had leprosy, you'd have to go live outside of town. So everyone knew where the lepers were. Their families would take food out there and leave it for them. So they were cared for. You know, they weren't hated or despised. Some people get that idea, like they're outcasts but not hated outcasts. You understand what I'm saying, right? They were st just they had to be separated from society. And so everybody knew where the lepers were. And bear that in mind, as Jesus is coming down from this hillside, and remember the picture we just saw of Capernaum, and on one side there's the lake, so, you know, kind of like Vero Beach. If, if you're going to build in Vero Beach, you can't go to the east. There's, there's water out there. You have to go to the west. And Capernaum was that way too. So outside of the village had to be between the village and the hillside. The hillside is where Jesus had just been teaching. So the lepers were outside the village. That means they were positioned somewhere between the village and the hillside where Jesus had just been. Now he's coming down from the hillside. Thousands of people are following him. And this leper comes out to meet him. I thought about that a little bit. Well, obviously everyone knew where the lepers were. Nobody wanted to go there because it's so contagious. So why would Jesus even be in proximity of the hillside? Or sorry, of the leper colony. If the lepers were sort of on the northwest side of town, then he would kind of, everyone would go to the northeast side of the town as they're coming, or the south, southwest side of town as they're coming into town. You get what I'm saying? But somehow or another, this leper was close enough to Jesus that he would come out. So I, I think it's pretty certain that this is what happened. Jesus knew where that leper was. Jesus wanted to encounter that leper. 
And I bet there were thousands of people behind Jesus who had been kind of following him down the mountain. Then when he started edging over towards where the lepers are, they probably stayed back a little bit and like, I'm not sure what this guy is doing or what's going on here. But Jesus went there because he wanted to have this encounter with the leper. I think that's important information. And this leper was probably in a spot where he, you know, was between the town and the hillside, was aware of what had been going on, was aware of who Jesus was, and already had belief in Jesus. So Jesus comes passing by, gets close enough. He had to have done that on purpose. Get close enough to the leper. The leper could come out, kneel before him, and ask to be healed because he believed that Jesus Christ had that power as the Son of God. And Jesus healed the leper. So then they go on down. This just happens right outside the city. They come down into the city, and just as they're entering the city, this Roman centurion comes up to him. The centurion was a, a Roman soldier who was a, a leader of, it's called a centurion because normally about 100 men who he was a leader of. So a man with authority in the Roman army who was positioned there because the Romans were occupying uh, Israel in that day. And so he was there, not a Jew, but he was obviously a believer because he comes up to Jesus concerned about his servant who's back at home, maybe in Rome, wherever that is, probably not that far away, but somewhere not right nearby. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I've got this servant, this servant who is sick and suffering. I think maybe we're one ahead here. So this would be the uh, faith of the centurion. Uh, anyhow, he's got this ser- servant who is suffering. He comes to Jesus concerned about his servant and he tells, and, and Jesus' first response is, okay, n- no problem. I'll go right now to your house and, and heal the servant. Then the centurion says this thing that's so, uh, so wise. I'm a man with authority. I understand authority. I understand how it works. In my work, I say this. I tell a man to go do something, and he goes and does it. I used to have uh, a, my, my job for 22 years was working, uh, leading a large organization. We had 2,500 employees all around the world. I didn't have the same experience as the centurion. My experience was more, I would tell my staff something they needed to do, and they'd be like, eh, I'll pray about it. Um, that's how Christians are in their work. They'll pray to see if they agree with what God is saying, and the boss says, never mind, those are old wounds coming out. Uh, but the centurion was a, a military guy, and in the military, if you're uh, superior tells you something to do, you're going to do it. So the guy's like, I know authority. I understand how this works. All you have to day, do is say the word. I don't need you to come to my house. My house is nothing special. Probably left breakfast dishes on the table. You don't want to see that. So all you have to do is say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And so Jesus did that. He said the word, and the servant was healed. And then Jesus made this interesting remark. He said, and this is in verse 10, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found so much faith. This guy was not a Jew. He was a Roman. He was not welcomed by the Jews. He was a part of the military force who was occupying their nation. And yet he had heard the teaching of Jesus. He believed and he had this faith. So much faith that Jesus made this remark. Of all the people in Israel, there's no one that has the faith that this guy has. I think that's remarkable. The next story starts in verse 14. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. We know Peter. Peter lived in this town. If you visit the little town of Capernaum, they've got a spot there uh, right next to the temple that was Peter's mother-in-law's house. I mean, they've identified it. They know where it is. You can see the ruins there. I've been there. It's very interesting. They go there because think of what had happened on this day. Jesus had been up there teaching on this hillside uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in the Bible, five, six, and seven. And uh, that's how he had spent his day with thousands of people. He comes down, meets the leper, heals him. He then goes into the town, meets this Roman centurion, heals him. And he's hungry and he's tired because he's been working all day. He is God, but he was also a man. And so he wants to find a place to maybe cool his heels for a few minutes and get a little something to eat and relax. Peter's house is right there in the middle of the town. Peter is one of his disciples. They go to Peter's house. The bad news is that Peter's mother-in-law who would have been the one who provided hospitality, giving them some food and all that, was sick and not able to do anything. She's laying there, and so Jesus goes in, and he heals his mother-in-law, and she jumps up and starts cooking them food. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, that was, on one hand, really smart of Jesus. He knew who to heal in order to get some good food. But I don't think that's what happened. I think he just had compassion on this lady who was sick, and it was her nature 
She had guests in the house. What did she want to do? You've been in that spot probably where you had people coming over or something you wanted to do. You wanted to do something for somebody, but you were sick and not able to, and you would have wanted nothing more than to be able to get up and serve your guests. And I think that's what happened. Jesus knew that about her, had compassion, heals her. She jumps up, starts fixing food, and they have a little time of rest. And then there's still this crowd of people that have been up on the mountainside and, uh, and heard his teaching, followed him down into town. They're outside, so there's a clamor in the streets, and people are bringing their sick friends and family members. There are demon-possessed people who are out there. coming. People are bringing them to have demons cast out of them. And we see at the end of that little section... In, uh, in verse 16 and 17, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to f- fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So this is the continuation of the day. He goes in there, he gets some food, he probably has a little bit of rest. But then there are all these people outside who are there to be healed bringing demon-possessed people. So Jesus goes back out to the people and performs who knows how many miracles. There's not a description of what they were or the people's lives that were affected, but Jesus continues to do this work primarily among people who had heard his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and believed that he was the Son of God. Okay, so Jesus uh, then gets to the point where he's ready to finish the day. You can understand this. I would be that way too. It's like, that's great. It's been a great day. We've done a lot of work. I really need to get some rest. I can see that I'm not going to get any rest here. So he takes his disciples and he says, let's go down to the, to the water, get in a boat, and we'll go across to the other side of the lake where people can't follow. So they start heading down that way, and two people come up to him that are recorded in this section in 18 through 22. So that would be the next, the cost of following Jesus. When, the, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever, wherever you go. And another guy came up to him in 21, says, uh, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. So these two guys come up to Jesus, and both of them are people. They're not the primary disciples, which we're familiar with, the 12 disciples. These are two other guys who saw what had happened. They've been following Jesus at least throughout the day or a couple of days, and came up to him, seeing Jesus was getting ready to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. These are two guys that are saying, hey, I'm coming with you. I mean, I believe in what you're doing. I'm really excited about all of this. I'm totally on board, and I'm coming with you. But Jesus, it doesn't give us a lot of description here, but the way I read this, Jesus would have known that these two guys were not probably going to stick with it. They were excited in the moment, and, uh, and so he said things to each of them. That it, we don't get the full story, but evidently were, was enough for them to realize, eh, maybe this isn't for me after all. And for one, it was just as simple as, you know what, you're probably expecting a nice hotel reservation on the other side of the lake, but uh, I actually have no place to even lay down. I don't have any place to, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. I have no place to even lay my head. And that was evidently enough for that guy to say, you know what, I think maybe I'll stay, stay here and I'll catch up to you another time. The other guy's father had just died and it was very important in that culture as it would be in ours to take care of the, the father and, and the burial and be with the family. And Jesus told him this, and this isn't, just shouldn't be taken as instruction that we aren't to care about our family in time of bereavement. This was something targeted for this person to give this one guy something that he would see and maybe trip over to expose the fact that he was not really committed to being a disciple and a true follower of Christ. As opposed to the 12 that God, uh, Jesus had selected, uh, some of whom we heard about in the passage of Scripture that Bill stood here and read for us a few moments ago where Jesus knew who these men were, he knew what they would do, he knew the work that he was going to do in their lives, and he knew that they would follow him. And you can see the stories of how the disciples, even after the ascension of Christ, in the time of the early church, many of them not only did great miracles, but also suffered for Christ. Most of them died in terrible ways for their faith. They had that level of stick to that Jesus knew about. These were a couple of guys who didn't have that, and so this was sort of a screening process. Now, the next story. Uh, this one, instead of telling you a little bit about it, and you, you know this story if you've ever been to church before, because it's one of the stories that we all hear again and again, a great story from the Word of God when Jesus calmed the storm. 
instead of telling you this, I want to show you a little piece of video that I think you'll enjoy. This is from a, a dear friend of mine. His name is Max McLean. He's a Broadway actor. And uh, he did a, a, a stage play called... Uh, I guess we're going to play it. Are we ready? Uh, let, me, let me finish. Uh, he did a stage play called Mark's Gospel. It played on Broadway. It played in major cities around the country. He went on to develop an organization called Fellowship of Performing Arts. You may have heard of them or seen some of their work in Orlando or Lauderdale or uh, Jacksonville or other cities. They do primarily plays based on C.S. Lewis's writings and his life. Uh, the Great Divorce, the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. But I wanted to show you Max's uh, stage piece where he's just quoting the scripture. It's not Matthew chapter 8, it's Mark chapter 4, but it has the same story of the calming of the storm, and I thought you would enjoy this. Let's go ahead and play the video. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. All by itself the soil produces grain, though he does not know how. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds in the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, he spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, oh, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat. It was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. The wind died down. And it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? <laughs> They were terrified and said to each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Garrison. The story of Jesus calming the storm. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. So, uh, you saw the little bit of the map right there. You didn't have time to see it much at the end of that video. But I love Max's portrayal of that and the way he brings expression to you know, how these guys must have felt when they saw Jesus do this incredible thing that shocked and surprised them. And then Jesus uh, got on the boat. So they're, they're in the boat in the middle of the lake. The, the weather is calmed, and they continue on. So if you picture on, on a map, the Sea of Galilee is a, kind of an oval-shaped body of water, and it's 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. Okay, so Capernaum is way up in the northwest corner of the lake, and where they were heading, this other town, is in the southeast corner of the lake. So you can see across the lake, but uh, and, and Capernaum, if, it was just, if they just went across the top part of the lake, all of those crowds who were following him could have just gone around the lake, and there were times in the New Testament where we see stories where people actually did that, and Jesus actually wanted to get away from these people for a little while. So they went from corner to corner down the 13-mile lake, so probably about 15 miles across from corner to corner to get uh, from one spot to the other, and this story that we just saw Max portraying happened in the middle of the lake. They got down to the other side of the lake, and now here was a spot where most of the, the territory, especially on the north, west, and south side of the Sea of Galilee, was uh, occupied by the people of Israel. This was a spot 
uh, that was occupied by another group of people, the Gadarenes, who were not, they were not Jews, they were not Israelites, they were not followers of God. They were, uh, in, in that time, would have been considered pagans of a pagan religion, and uh, they didn't mix with the people of Israel. So what happened is Jesus gets there, the disciples get out of the boat, and they start to go up the hill, and there's an area, like the cemetery area, the tombs. And in the tombs, there were two men who were demon-possessed. If you read about it, not just in Matthew, but in the other accounts from the other writers of the Gospels, there's a lot more detail given about these guys. These were two guys who were so violent that uh, it says here that when people went by that way, they would have to avoid them because they would come out and, uh, and cause violence. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. We see also that the people of the town had subdued them and chained them up and that they would even break the chains and get loose. So they, they ended up out there in these tombs, and that's where they lived, and the people of the town would just avoid them. So Jesus and his disciples are going near there by accident, probably not. Jesus knew they were there, and he wanted to minister to these two men who were demon-possessed, and so he goes up, and these men see him in the distance and start crying out to him, recognizing because of the, the demons dwelling inside of these two men, recognize that this is the Son of God, start crying out to him, similar to the passage that Bill read to us a few moments ago that took place in the temple or the synagogue. In this case, they see him in the distance and start crying out, identifying him as the Son of God. He, to make a long story short, he casts out a legion of demons from these two men into this herd of pigs. The pigs run down the hillside into the Sea of Galilee, and the pigs all drown and are dead. And the people, who the herdsmen who were in charge of this herd of pigs, went into the village and start telling people. People of the village come out and they see Jesus and they're bothered by all of this because, A, I think probably they were used to dealing with the two demon-possessed guys. You just leave them alone and they're going to be fine. And they valued their herd of pigs, which were now dead in the sea, and, uh, and they weren't happy about this. And so they asked Jesus to leave, to get out of his area, go home. So Jesus did. They got into the boat at the start of chapter 9 and crossed over and came to his own city. So they went back from the southeast corner of the lake, back up to the northwest corner of the lake, to the city of Capernaum, and that's how chapter 8 ends. Great stories, huh? The Bible is full of such great stories, but it's not just for our entertainment. They are entertaining. You dive into the details, and I love doing this. We didn't have time this morning to just get into the details of all these stories and tell these stories the way these stories should be told because that's not what Matthew intended. Matthew put these stories in this sequence, in this portion of Scripture, to teach us something that we need to learn. And so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on what was the point that Matthew was trying to make about Jesus, and it was about this. That Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, has authority over sickness. We saw that in the healing of the leper. Over time and space, we saw that in the way he healed the servant of the centurion. Over the wind and the waves, which really freaked out the disciples. And over evil spirits. So he talked about authority in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about the kingdom of God and how he was the Lord of the kingdom and the authority that he had. And now he went on to demonstrate primarily to the same people who had just heard him teach actual live demonstrations of his authority over things that nobody has authority over. And what we learn from that is Jesus, our Lord, has absolute authority over all things. So I think it's important at this point to recognize that my job this morning is not to convince you of anything. It's not to persuade you in some way. It's to just teach what the Scripture teaches and let you do with that what you will. What I mean by that is it's up to you and your decision and God's working in your mind and your heart how you personally interact with the Word of God. My job is to explain what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God is teaching us here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has authority that he expressed in teaching, and he has authority over all of these things that he expressed not by teaching but by his actions. And he has, we can see from this that he has absolute authority over time and space and sickness and life and death and 
natural things that go around us with the wind and the waves and the weather over the spirit world. He has absolute authority over all things. So then that leads us to this question. How do we apply that to our lives? The wrong way to look at Scripture is to read Scripture and and ask, what does this mean to me? The right way to do it is to recognize what this means. I don't care what you think it means to you. The truth is what it actually means, and then how do I apply that to my life? How does that apply to me? And so I want to do that a little bit today. These are biblical truths, theological realities that we need to see and comprehend and then apply to our lives and situation. So here are some applications. As a follower of Christ, I can trust his work in and around me because of his authority. And that's one of the takeaways that we should have from reading the eighth chapter of the book of Matthew. As a follower of Christ, somebody who has come in my life to the point of recognizing my sin and my need of a Savior, and having come into that relationship with God through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So now I'm what some people would call a Christian. Some people would call a follower of Christ, a believer. Whatever the term is that you would like to use, that's what we're talking about. And because I am a follower of Christ, I can trust his work in and around me because of his authority. I think it was in about 1990, maybe 1991, I came across a book by a guy named Jerry Bridges called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. I think Jerry died a couple of years ago. But if you ever have a chance to get this book, I highly recommend it, especially if you've ever noticed that sometimes life hurts and yet you trust God. Jerry has some great insight. I don't remember all that he said, but I will never forget. 1991 was a few years ago. We've all been through a lot since then, but I've never forgotten this little thing. In 1991, I had three little girls at home. And so I was a dad of three young children. I remember him saying that God is all wise and he knows what's best for me. And I contrast that to myself when I was sitting there reading that book. Like, I want to do the best for my kids, but I wasn't all wise. I didn't always know what was the absolute best thing to do for my children and my family. But God doesn't have that problem. God is all wise and always knows exactly what is right for you. And the second thing is God is completely loving and always wants what's best for me. As a father, I also had flaws in that area. I really did want what was best for my my kids. But you know, as humans, sometimes we have a little bit of selfishness and sometimes we angle more towards what we want to do, not always what's best for someone else. It's a flaw that we all have to struggle with that God does not ever have to struggle with. So God always knows exactly what's best. God always wants exactly what's best. And the third thing is, because he's God, He's all-powerful, and he can actually do what's best. As a father with three young daughters, even if I, in a certain situation, knew exactly what was right, and with complete selflessness, wanted to carry out exactly what needed to be done, I may or may not have the power or authority or money or whatever else it took to actually do that. So God doesn't suffer in any of those three areas. And Jerry Bridges' point was, these are reasons why we as followers of Christ can have absolute confidence in God as it pertains to his authority. He knows what to do, he wants what's best for us, and he can actually carry all those things out in our lives. And there have been many times in my life when I had to recognize these three things about God, and it brought me tremendous comfort during times of difficulty. But God's authority does not always bring the same comfort to those who have not placed their belief in him, who are not children of God, are followers of Christ, who have not come to that point of accepting his gift of salvation. Here are some examples. The people who learned of Jesus casting out the demons into the herd of pigs were not comforted. They saw Jesus do this miracle. That, that was something that truly benefited their entire community. He, he, and they no longer were going to have the problem of these violent, demon-possessed men that lived outside their village. They had to go actually around separate ways whenever they traveled because of the damage that those guys would do to them. They weren't comforted. They were used to the demon-possessed men, and they valued the herd of pigs, and so their response was they asked Jesus to leave. It's interesting, if you look at these stories in chapter 8 of Matthew, this is the only one that didn't involve people who had just spent their time listening to Jesus teach. Everyone else that he did those miracles to, 
I don't know for sure that that's the case of all of the group of people outside of Peter's mother-in-law's house that evening. It doesn't give us details of all those healings. But we can assume because of the geographical area where they were right there where Jesus had been doing this, that they knew who Jesus was and believed. So what I'm saying is you see all these people who are believers in Jesus Christ who came to him for healing, and then these people who were strangers and aliens and didn't believe, and their reaction was entirely different. Think about it for a minute. And you've probably seen this happen with people who you know. You can look at something that God is obviously doing and somebody who doesn't have that same spiritual insight because they're not in relationship with God, don't know the scriptures and don't have basic trust in him, can look at the same thing and just cannot comprehend it, don't understand it. Um, Martin Luther said, I don't remember, if we, do we have the, okay, here's something Martin Luther said that I think is just awesome. The natural mind, that means the mind that's not in relationship with God, renewed and transformed, the natural mind cannot conceive of anything godly. It doesn't make sense. It does not perceive the wrath of God, therefore cannot trust or believe him either. Therefore, we should constantly pray. Now, now he's talking we, followers of Christ. Therefore, we should constantly pray that God will bring forth his gifts in us. In our natural mind, our natural way, the godly stuff doesn't make any sense. So people who don't trust in God don't have a proper fear of God don't have a proper respect for God, and there's no possible way that they can trust in God. But here's the hard part. I know that when you're sitting there listening to somebody ramble on like I'm doing, and we're not going to go too much longer, I say that to encourage you. Your mind tends to wander. Jerk your mind out of the wandering for a minute and catch this, because this is This is the real tough part of this teaching. It's this fact that the authority of Christ does not ensure our comfort and well-being during our time on earth. It doesn't ensure eternal life in heaven for those who believe. You've experienced this, right? As a follower of Christ, doing your very, very best, drawing close to him and doing your diligent work of having time in prayer and time in the scripture and being around the right people and doing the right things and and living the life of faith and then recognizing that that doesn't somehow give us magical protection from difficulty and pain. So if God has this ultimate authority over time and space and sickness and death and the spirit world and all of the things that trouble us during our life on earth, and God who loves us has his ultimate authority, why does he allow this stuff to happen in our lives? And how do those two facts mesh? This fact, our king has ultimate authority, and life sometimes is really, really awful. This week I talked to uh, three specific people about this who've been through extreme difficulty in their lives. One, a 26-year-old wife whose husband died unexpectedly um, in, in her arms, and she had to deal with, with that. Had a long conversation with her about what, what that was like. All three of these people, by the way, it's important to know, were people who had a deep faith in Christ, strong and serious theological training, Bible degrees in college, theological expertise, or else had been raised in the church their entire lives. So they weren't just some casual people who had some deep faith without, or some shallow faith without a lot of understanding of the concepts of Scripture. The second person, a young lady, 31 years old, with two uh, preschool children who was diagnosed with serious breast cancer. Sat and talked with her on Friday evening and asked her some questions about what, what that was like and thinking about God and trusting in him and having confidence in his authority while he was allowing this to happen in her life, in her family. This is real stuff. And then I had a conversation with a, a guy who I've known for 30 years. His name is Mike Nye. He lives in upstate New York. He's a pastor. He and his wife, Allison, have 12 kids. The first question is always, are they Catholic? <laughs> 
They're not. They're just people who decided when they were young they were just going to have kids whenever they had kids. And they never stopped having kids, and they might be having some kids right now while we're here. I don't even know. But their 10-year-old boy, Jack, was out playing in the yard a little over a year ago with his brothers and sisters, and the bikes collided, and he fell over and cried. And, you know, like happens with 10-year-old boys all the time. They had the doctor check him and found nothing wrong, and that night he died. So these are people who, who have experienced excruciating pain with absolute confidence and trust in who God is. People who would believe what this piece of Scripture is teaching and then got hit with some of the most difficult things that anyone in life could be hit with and had to figure out how does this work. And so I sat down with all three of these people. One was not in person. Mike lives up in New York. But we had a conversation online and asked him, like, how did, how did you deal with this? How did you reconcile this? And all three of them had the same basic response. The common theme from each of these people who trusted completely in God as they endured excruciating pain, each had an acknowledgement of God's goodness along with the fear of the unknown absolute confidence that God had the right to do in their lives what he chose to do. I thought that was interesting. All three of them, clearly, I love God, I serve God, I acknowledge God's authority, and God had the right. Mike Nye, who lost his 10-year-old son, said, God had in my boy's days numbered. He didn't live too short, and he didn't live too long. He lived exactly as God had planned. And during those 10 years, God allowed Allison and I to have him in our family and have that joy. I mean, don't get me wrong, this guy was crushed. He was so, so broken when that happened, as you could imagine. So it wasn't flippant at all, it was this. And then he went on to tell me, if we can go to the next slide. He answered this question. He talked about the parable of the mustard seed that in the little video we just watched, Max McLean referred to. The little mustard seed. He was talking about this is the kingdom of God. The mustard seed, you plant it in the ground, and then it grows into this huge plant. A mustard seed, mustard seed and Jesus also talked about if you have faith as small as a, a mustard seed, it can move a mountain. A speck of faith so small that it cannot encompass understanding of reasons or outcomes, just simple faith. He talked about that, Mike Nye, about his boy, that he had this basic simple faith didn't understand what happened, why it happened, where it was leading. He did tell me that people came to him and said, well, you know, God is going to bring good out of this and, and do good work you know, through the death of your son. And his response to me was like, I, I don't care. Like God can find some other way to do that good without costing me the death of my 10-year-old boy. So he was hurting, but he didn't doubt. And so he said to, to me yesterday, so even though I may not understand how Christ's authority and power are at work, I know that they are, because he said so. And his spirit testifies with my spirit that this is truth. This is the kind of thing Martin Luther was talking about in that quote I just shared with you. If you don't have that regenerated spiritual mind and understand spiritual truths, this is nonsense. But if you understand spiritual truths, you're sitting there saying, yeah, this is right. I know God because the Scripture teaches us of His authority and His love and His goodness and His grace and His generosity and His care for His people. And so you start putting these together, and there are some things that boggle the mind, but the spiritual mind can say this, even though I don't understand how this is working, I do understand that it is working and that God is doing this in my life. And He has the authority and the right to do all of it. As we wind this up, I want to share this verse of Scripture with you from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10 because I think this kind of brings all of this that we've been talking about together this morning. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. It's not talking about people who have physically died. It's talking about you, if you're a follower of Christ. Your old life has died, 
and then you're resurrected to this new life in Christ, this new spiritual mind that comprehends the things of God in a different way. So set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And that's our message this morning. Whether you're caught up in worrying about sickness or about the political landscape or about finances or about what it's going to be like to, uh, around the Thanksgiving table on Thursday with family, whatever it is that you're troubled by this week about sickness, about uh, all kinds of things that hit us, what God is telling us is that's the stuff of the earth. It's not like it doesn't matter. And it's not that we should pretend it doesn't affect us, because it does. These three people I talked to this week, their lives were crushed. It matters. But set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That's where your life is. This life is just for a moment. And this is all just to give us a little bit of exercise in understanding the truth and the reality of the Almighty God that we will spend eternity in where there is no sorrow and there is no sickness and there is no pain and there are not tears. That's where our life is. In that little clip that Max McLean uh, acted out for us of the calming of the storm, something that always seemed odd to me about that in the scriptural accounts, you see that after Jesus calmed the storm, he turned to the disciples and he rebuked them. Why? I mean, didn't they do what they should do? They were smart. They'd been around Jesus. They'd see him do all of these miracles. And these were not just uh, guys who didn't know what it was like in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. They were most of them fishermen who'd probably been in that same boat out on that lake in the same kind of storms many times. But there was something about this storm they knew this is the big one, and we're not going to survive this. And they were afraid. So in that situation, what did they do? What should they do? Jesus is right there with them. They've seen Jesus do all these miracles, so they wake Jesus up and say, Lord, save us. When we're facing our most difficult times of desperate need, what should we do? Cry out to God, Lord, save me. That's exactly what they did. And Jesus woke up calmed the storm, did this miracle, and he's like, what's wrong with you guys? Why don't you have any faith? And it's a little bit bewildering, isn't it? Like, they, what, what were they supposed to do? What mistake did they make that he was correcting them on? I think it was this. Guys, set your minds on things above. So the boat goes down. So we all drown. This is not where our life is. Set your minds on things above, not on things in the boat. And that's the mistake that they made. And that's the same mistake I make. And I bet you do too. When we get hit with those things that hurt, that cripple us, confuse us, or just irritate us, We can trust in Almighty God as followers of Christ because we serve a God who has authority. Things are not out of his control. He's doing what he has chosen to do, and he's carrying out his plan in your life, even when it hurts. Set your eyes on things above and not things below. Whatever you're facing this week, Whatever's next, waiting around the corner. I suggest today that you commit to trusting in the authority of our King. And if you have not come to faith in Christ, that doesn't really apply to you. If you have not come to the point of confessing your sin and acknowledging the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, as payment for your sin, and putting your faith in him to forgive you and give you that new life. If you haven't done that yet, then none of this that I've talked about today should really mean anything much to you at all. It's just stories about people who believe something different than you do. But what I suggest that you do is listen to the voice of God speaking to you today. 
And as we close this morning, find your way up here to one of these people who are eager to pray with you and explain to you from the Word of God how you can have that relationship and that new life with Him and live your life under the authority of this King. He has authority over this world and your life, whether you acknowledge it or not. I'm thankful this week for a lot of things. You know, I'm thankful for all the simple things like food and shelter and all of those things, but none of that really matters that much. You know why? Those are the earthly things. Set your hearts, your minds, your thinking on things above, not things below. In heaven, where your life is. And be thankful for those things this week and express that as you gather with your family. I'd like to ask you to stand. We're going to close in prayer. And I'd like to ask our prayer partners, our elder team, pastors, to come up to the front. And if you'd like to pray this morning about any of this, to, to learn more about how you can come to faith in Christ and enter that relationship with Him, or if you'd like to have prayer with one of these people about something that's difficult and troubling you this morning, because that idea of just setting your eyes on things above, those are easy words to say, but it's a challenge and a battle to do it day after day after day after day. I'm so glad that I have people that pray for me. This guy, Mike Nye, that I mentioned to, his little boy died. You know what this guy did? I hadn't seen him. I think the last time I saw him was probably close to 20 years ago. But we started communicating. And every morning, he gets up way early. I'm, I'm a morning person. Morning's my favorite time to sleep. <laughs> He's one of those oddballs that gets up early. So when I get up every morning in, in my inbox, there's a message from Mike Nye that's a prayer that he's praying for me today. Every single day, it has been so long since I didn't get that. I don't remember when that was. I'm so thankful to have a guy like that in my life who's praying for me every day. I forget what I was going to say about that, but uh, I'm sure it was profound. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the fact that we can pray for one another the way that Mike prays for me day after day that my vision would be where it should be as I go through the complexities of life. Let us pray for and encourage one another as we fight those battles as followers of Christ and as a body of believers. Father, we also this morning pray for those who are part of our lives and around us who spiritual eyes maybe are peaking a little bit but haven't really been opened. They see that there's something to this truth but haven't really taken that step of faith that leads from death to life. I pray for those who are part of each of our lives today that you would continue to work through us and in us as you work in them. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can be certain because of Scripture, not because of rumor or reputation or hearsay, but we can be certain because of Scripture that you are a God with absolute authority in the affairs of men in the things of this world. We put our trust and our confidence in you because you alone are God. I pray now for your blessing on this group of people this morning, this body of believers who's gathered here as Vero Bible Fellowship. And Father, may your face shine upon them. May your grace be shown to them. May their hearts be filled with joy because of the presence of the Savior as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.